Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Johnny Carson once interviewed Betty Davis and asked if she had any advice for young starlets wanting to get ahead in Hollywood. She suggested take Fountain. Fountain Avenue runs parallel to Santa Monica and Sunset Boulevards in Hollywood and is often used to avoid the heavier traffic. And isn't that what we're all after? A smooth run, no hold-ups, not only in traffic, but also in life. How do people handle those hold-ups, the rejections? How do they create a life in the entertainment capital of the world? How do they identify and express their uniqueness in a place where hundreds of thousands are hoping to do the same. Welcome to Take Fountain. Compelling stories from passionate people who've made it, are making it, in Hollywood. Writers, comedians, actors, filmmakers. I'll talk to anyone with a story to tell. Welcome to Take Fountain, a podcast of passionate people working on their dreams. Compelling stories from Hollywood. Your host, Ella James. Uh, first of all, I want to thank Australians in Film for giving us uh, access to this fantastic venue. My guests today are Rosie Lord and Julie Kalsef, who are producers of Starting From Now. We'll get to that in a minute, but hello. Hi. Hi. Thanks for coming in. So I wanted to talk a little bit about where we are because it's, it's amazing and I'll try and create a visual for you. But we're in the Raleigh Studios in Hollywood and this is where Charlie Chaplin and Douglas Fairbanks set up their studio, which still exists today. But Australians in film have got this amazing office with an incredible history. And Chaplin has been here and Douglas Fairbanks has been in this timber-lined early last century office and Judd Apatow has worked from here and um, oh God, Kevin Costner has done. you know I only do that because I have to be able to get through names as part of my junior Alzheimer's program <laughs> <laughs> but can you feel that do well. yeah it's cool it's amazing it's, it's, it's so exciting. great space yeah it's a great space so they had a designer in um, Peter Weir's daughter Ingrid and she has sourced all of this, all the furniture and, and even all of the books and, and records and so on from uh, various little uh, cheapy stores, you know, estate sales and, and flea markets and, um, and it's all of the time and all has particular meaning to the room. It's quite a, I'm waiting for the ghost of somebody with big shoes and a cane <laughs> kind of thing. But it's really, it's really lovely to, to talk to you. Rosie and I go back a number of years when we did a play reading for Hilary Bell in a tiny little house in Darlinghurst. Do you remember that? It was amazing. It was, wasn't it? Yeah. And it, just such a wonderful play. I don't know whether it got off the ground yet. These things take time. Yeah, I don't think it did. Mm. Um, Hilary's been so busy doing so many other projects. Yeah. 
But oh, it was so lovely to meet her and to work with her. I know, I know. Those were the days, yeah. right? Living back in Australia. So Rosie is in Los Angeles because she has been producing with Julie uh, the most extraordinary series. So just uh, the short run of it is this. It is a YouTube series called Starting From Now. And it has had 25 million views around the world for how many series? Is it, how many seasons have you have you had? So we're we're releasing the fifth season at the moment. So that twenty five million views is across the first four seasons. Yeah. Um, we've currently got the first two eps of the fifth season online, and we're releasing an episode a week. Okay. And this is a, this is an Australian Australian production. You're both. Um, you, well, Julie, I know that you're actors. Um, and for Americans, that's the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. And Rosie, where did you two meet? We met in the audition room. I had a cast. I saw the casting notice for the character Darcy, and was so just taken by the concept and so inspired by Julie and her vision, and just applied to be an actor on it. And so then um, we met in the audition room and one of the other actors, Sarah DePossessed, she was there and we were actually at drama school together. We were at Actor Centre Australia in different years but we, we became quite close whilst we were both training. And um, then when Julie offered me the role and got to, got to really get to know her on the set, we really started to see how we clicked. But I didn't come on board as a producer until, until season three. Yeah, I was mm. just about to get to mm. that. So Julie, this was your baby. And I was talking to somebody last night who's actually seen all of it because I've seen uh, seasons one and two and five. Mm -hmm. Don't, I, <laughs> no, hello. I'm a busy woman. No. <laughs> Thanks, Ella. That's what we're doing. But no, they said uh, that what is really interesting about this is that a lot of a lot of queer media uh, is is very, very gay, very queer, very Mardi Gras, very, and the stories are a stereotype that, that is wrong of, oh, you know, am I gay, am I not gay, and oh, you know, all of these terrible, terrible dramas um, that my, my friends tell me it's just not, not the case at all. Um, but this is a story of four women and living their lives, but they happen to be lesbians. Mm, yeah, that's right. And it's interesting, I think because there there is a lack of diversity on screen, because there's a lack of content, queer content, um, I think that's an interesting point. I think when people then do create queer content, they overcompensate. And it's like, this has to be about being gay because we need to be seen, um, which I think actually has the opposite effect. So people, they, people kind of then shy away from it and get defensive. So. Um, what I wanted to do was to create a series that had four female protagonists because there's clearly not enough roles for women. Mm. Um, and I wanted to create characters who were lesbian but the focus of the show wasn't about their sexuality. Um, when I was growing up there were no there were no lesbian role models on screen. Um, mainstream television Australia is was and still is very conservative. Um, and I think that's tough if, if, you're, if you're young or if you're at any age and you're struggling with your sexuality and you don't see yourself represented, you, you feel like there's something wrong with you, you become the other, you, you define yourself in terms of how you're not and how, you, how you're different to, to what's the norm. Mm. And, um, and you either get very depressed or you just try and fit in and deny who you are. So it, it was important for me to create a series where we had four female characters 
who were lesbians, but who who that and that wasn't a source of contention for them. That wasn't a death sentence. There's a lot of content where um, it is very much about the sexuality, and then as a way of creating conflict, a character then you know ends up killing themselves or is killed because mm-hmm. that's the only way we can deal with that. So um, I wanted to have these characters who who were complex women because that's people are complex and women are complex so I wanted to create complex characters but um, that were more than just their sexuality yeah well you certainly achieved it I don't want to I don't want to talk too much about the storylines because I don't want to ruin it for anybody it's starting from now and you can find it on starting from now dot tv or tv.com 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 see let me just do that ad again <laughs> starting from now tv.com there you go that's better. that one's free um, so you have come to LA uh, this has now been on our screens for two years yeah, so we started, um, the audition process was almost three years ago. So Rosie and I met three years ago. And just, you know, just to put it out there, when she auditioned and and she accepted the role, because when I saw her audition, I knew that, that she was perfect for the role. Um, I asked her, because Rosie was um, producing a feature film at the time, and so I asked her to come on board as a producer. And she said no, because she was too busy with the other project. And because, you, yeah. you, you, you can defend yourself. <laughs> Well, um, there were two kind of deciding factors involved. One was that um, I was really busy still finishing, still making the feature film Skin Deep, but also I knew how um, complicated it was going to be for me personally to play the role of Darcy, and I also know how how much I will take the opportunity to not entirely go to the emotional depths of her and give her the truth. I would have if I had the opportunity to be like, oh, I'm producing and I've got to do this spreadsheet or make these emails and mm. not really invest myself. And so I didn't feel comfortable saying yes to producing from the beginning and, and compromising um, Darcy, essentially. So you came on as a producer in season three? Okay. In season three. And you, you funded this yourselves? How did that all work? So the first two seasons were self-funded. Um, so my partner and I funded the first two seasons. It was, it, it was, the whole thing's been quite an interesting process because originally um, the first season was written in isolation and the plan was to, to make a season to gauge audience interest and to prove that there's an audience for diverse content. Um, so we shot the first season. We shot in September of 2014. Um, the day after shooting... 2013. 2013. Yes, 2013. So the day after shooting, um, we packed up, we left set. I was taking the gear back to, to the film school that I worked at because everything was done on the cheap. Mm. Um, and as I was walking along, I was thinking about what happened to the characters next and realised that there was more to the story. So got straight in touch with the actors, said, are you up for another one? So quickly wrote a second season. We were losing out two of our main locations at the end of that year. So between September and December, we wrote, we were in pre, we rehearsed, and then we shot in December. So we had two seasons shot before we actually went into post. So those two seasons were self-funded. Um, I think my partner was only expecting to fund one, but then it, <laughs> then it became two. Hello, darling. <laughs> um, Would you like another Vegemite sandwich? <laughs> Sorry, that's what we're eating for six months. some baked beans. Um, Yes, yeah, so then we went into post and we started to see what was there. When we put the first episode of the first season out, the response was really overwhelming. And so then we realised that there was something special. We ran a short 
um, small crowdfunding campaign for the third season. We got a small amount of funds. We shot the season three, and that's after that. Um, we'd had when we had three seasons out, and Rosie came on board as a producer for season three. That's when we realised that we needed to that we really needed to escalate the production values. We needed to serve our audience, and we sat down and worked out how many more seasons we were going to do and how we were going to fund that. Mm. Mm. So, so you've got you've got these two seasons in the in the can. What, how do you get them out? Do you just, oh, I'm just going to create a little, my fingers, by the way, just emulating <laughs> a keyboard at the moment. I'm just going to create a YouTube account and I'm going to call it this. I mean, how, how do you get your content out there to get the reaction that you get? And, and let me repeat, 25 million views. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting right. because um, there's such pr- a proliferation. Pr- sorry, proliferation. There's of, a lot of, of web. There's a lot. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, there's such a lot of content online that people think that if they put it out there, people will find it, but they won't. You, you need some way of cutting through. So before we even released the first episode, we made um, really strong relationships with lesbian websites, lesbian bloggers. Um, we told them the content was coming. They had direct access to our audience. So it made sense to to create a buzz and create interest within them so that they could then tell their audience, their audience would be waiting for it. And as you know, there's not a lot of content out there. So if you do something that's done well, people are really excited about it. So we tried to create this buzz. We got all our social media in line before we released an episode. So we had our YouTube channel, um, our Facebook, our Twitter. We also created a really strong relationship with One More Lesbian. That's a, a, a website that um, that houses lesbian content. They have 135,000 subscribers on their YouTube channel. So we knew that if we could get onto that channel, that that's that people would find it. And I used, to, you know, I would go to that channel and look for content. So I knew that it was a, a place where people go. Mm. Um, so having secured all those relationships and put everything in place, when we released the first episode, people were waiting for it, and knowing that we had. Um, knowing we had content that would appeal to a niche audience, the plan was to to target that niche audience first and then hopefully the show was good enough that word of mouth would spread and we'd pick up a wider audience, which we have. Julie, what was it like for you, and, and for you, Rosie, too, those first days and nights when it had been released? And... and the web becomes such an analytic place, mm. doesn't it? It's like all the numbers are starting to pop up. But what was that like for you as you started to see the results? It was it was really funny because because I was working at a film school and everything was done on a very modest budget. I had um, you know a lot of the students on set working on it. Um, one of my colleagues at, at the school was doing the color grade, and and he was like he would be the opposite of what we thought our target audience was. But he was so into the show, and it was funny. I'd get to work and he'd say. Oh, I saw there were another thousand views on it overnight, and he was he was getting excited, and he was counting. So I think everyone was, as the views started racking racking up, everyone was getting excited, and and it was just amazing that people were watching the show. And I, you know, I knew and I'd, I'd hoped there was an audience that wanted to watch it. But when you actually see those figures, and you get comments and feedback from the audience, and you see how engaged they are, then then that's something else that really solidifies that, and that's. Yeah, it's really satisfying. Rosie, you came on season three as a producer. Mm-hmm. What's that experience been like for you? It's been really complicated, um, really great and really complicated, um, mainly because it's the first time I'd ever acted and produced on the same project. And they're completely different brains, like, and especially with a character that's so emotional. They're, they're just completely different brains. Um, season three was 
was tricky, but we actually had um, one of the other actors, Lauren Oral, was producing with us that season as well. And so between the three of us, we tried to find our feet and how that worked, getting covering all of the production needs, um, but then also because Julie was directing and then, Ju- and then Lauren and I were acting, trying to figure out... We, like if we lost a location whilst all of us were shooting and trying to figure out how we could like problem solve as we went along it's been an incredible learning experience I just it's been so exponential and I'm so grateful for the opportunity and for the for the opportunity I feel like it's it's something that it, it's what I want to do I want to keep acting and producing um, on same projects and on separate projects and I feel so blessed that that starting from now has been the space where I've been able to find that. So, but you've got from from three, you had funding. Yes. Okay. So. People, oh no 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 no. Well, well yes, we but we had some. People were being paid. No. Okay. Kind of. We we had we ran a small crowdfunding campaign for season three. It wasn't enough to pay everybody. We needed to. We it covered expenses and donuts and lights. Equipment and some food, obviously. Everyone was always so fed. Craft services. You've right, got to. Yeah. You have to. Like, especially when people are doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. You can't have them working on set and, and starving. Oh, you... And most of it goes on non-alcoholic red wine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Major budget expense. Yes, <laughs> no, but I, no, seriously, there's nothing worse um, than being on, on the various websites in Hollywood uh, where you're asked to be a part of a film for, uh, for a copy for your reel and uh, and also for meals and uh, and your transport, and then they never pay you transport, and they don't. You know, the only no. thing that's there is is creamer for the coffee and a bit of three-day-old pizza crust yeah. uh, because the soundies got in there first. Um, and you know, and you never get a copy for your reel, mm. which is is tremendously sad. Okay, but so what was your day job while you were doing all of this? Um, I um, was working the. I was working for an, a, a corporate acting agency. I was producing okay. some of the the corporate acting jobs and also working as a corporate actor. Okay. Um, and and I. I you were going to say you were working porn. The, 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 the <laughs> Sorry, that I know. I was. Oh, wait, wait oh, a second. No, well, no, no, because there there is that, that was happening simultaneously with me um actually um working the the um the government system, and so I was. I don't know how much I can talk about this though. Well, um, do I, I mean, talk yeah. about what you're comfortable with talking about. Yeah. So um. Yeah, so I, I was my day job was the the corporate acting. Okay, so so the other thing, can we talk about uh, about the funding that you've just received from Screen Australia? Because I saw that on my news source Facebook uh, <laughs> this morning uh, that you've both just been uh, been awarded something with Mamma Mia, and also uh, there's some other stuff that you're doing as well. Have I surprised you? A little. No, no. Heavens, hang on. Oh, no, sorry. That wasn't you. <laughs> we are in that. Well, we, yes. we weren't sure how public that, that part of the mm. information was. And well, I went to Screen Australia's website. Okay. There, no. so okay. Yeah, because Mother Mia had spoken to yes. us about including us in their application, which we were more than happy to do. It's such a great organisation. And they've been supporting starting from now as well, okay. um, which has been mm. just wonderful. Yeah. So what the, it's, I, I want to call it Eat, Pray, Love, but that's Elizabeth Gilbert. <laughs> what are they doing? Learn, laugh and limbo <laughs> it's a three thing yeah oh. that's Flo and Frank are you talking about Acon um, talk touch test no oh okay, okay. 
Oh, I'm not sure. We need to actually get we on the website and have a look. Okay. <laughs> no, well that's, but that's exciting. So you've got, you've got some more funded stuff coming up. Yeah, so we've just... Um, so through Screen Australia's Gender Matters program, for anyone who doesn't know what that is, is um, Screen Australia's initiative to really support female storytellers in the film and television industry on all, through all aspects, in front and behind the screen. Um, we submitted an application for a TV show um, which speaks directly to the audience that we've been building through starting from now um, and it's only an early stage development um, but we submitted a concept and they said that they were excited by it and they've they've um, awarded us some money to to help support us develop it into a fully fleshed concept that we can then start pitching and and get it out there you Specified there the audience that you've been targeting now, mm-hmm. but Julie, you also earlier said that one of the one of the guys that was working on this is the antithesis to your expected mm. target market. So has this been a surprise for you to see how many? I don't know what the antithesis is. Straight <laughs> male? I don't know. Yeah, he's a straight male cricket playing football loving <laughs> bloke. Do you think because we are wrong in that we like? Don't you find sometimes that we're all guilty of making assumptions? Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. And it was it was interesting um, working with him on the show because because as a colour gradist, he's grading with the sound down, and so he's just looking at the image. Um, and he and so he would be really engaged with what was happening and trying to find out, you know, oh, so how come she's doing that? And and he was really getting involved in the storyline, which was great. Um, but yeah, we've been incredibly surprised. We our audience is twenty percent male. We have um, a, a wide range of audience members. We've got lots of straight men. We've got. Um, homosexual men that watch the show um, and they're all quite in, they're all engaged it's not like you know when you say oh straight men are watching a lesbian drama mm. you automatically presume they're watching it for the sex but the comedian in me wants to say that if you've got a 20% male audience that's not just a trans joke is it <laughs> like the 20% male because they're oh because oh, they are right, yeah. <laughs> is it too early is it too late sorry we, we had a late night last night <laughs> Okay, I just won't run, run, run that one at the no, cafe. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so they they're really engaged. They all yeah. they, they comment a lot on what's happening. They pick sides. Our our audience is very invested in um, <laughs> in when a character makes a decision they don't agree with. They're very very vocal, vocal about it. Right. They make that quite clear. Don't you think though that 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 when you talk about diversity in in television and media. And then what happens is that we, we go off and we create something that's specifically for a market, Indigenous Australia, women, um, the L, um, lesbian, gay, I always get the... LGBTQI. Thank, thank you so much. <laughs> um, forgive me. Um, but we, we go off in certain areas and then we run a risk of alienating people by making the stories so much about, mm. about mm. us that, that we can't get through. Although still a diverse market, and Rosie, you were talking about about providing something to a targeted diversity mm-hmm. market. Mm-hmm. What you've now done is created something for all people. Mm. Yeah, and that and that's that's been great because you were right in your point before that if something is true, that a lot of queer content is focused on on sexuality, and so by making the show about relationships and and about people. Everyone can relate to it. Everyone fights about the same things. Everyone has. It's like crownies, but everybody's a lesbian. <laughs> yeah. Sort of. There's a few lesbians right. in crownies. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it's, it's just about relation. It's a, it's a yeah. relationship drama and, and everyone fights about the same things and people um, can engage with that. Yeah. And we had some great feedback at the screening last night from... Um, from people who identify as as straight men and they were saying that they stopped seeing that they hadn't seen the show before they were there for the screening they hadn't seen the show and they stopped seeing that it was two women and they just became involved in the characters in the story and and that's extremely gratifying and and again i think it's important to say a lot of that comes down to the acting we've got a really a really amazing cast that has been on board from the beginning um the quality of the acting the, the depth and nuance they bring to those performances is incredible and the audience it, the audience is so engaged with those characters because of the performances and it's mm. and working with the cast over three years has been such a gift to be able to do that and to be able to work with these actors and develop the characters and as the seasons have gone on we've all settled into our roles more and that relationship has been so special and I think um, the show is blessed and I think people are responding to that. You know what you're going to be doing next because you've just received funding for it and you're now producing together. Uh, do you have an idea in your mind of the perfect, the perfect storm for you, the perfect thing that, we'll start with you Rosie, the perfect storm in your life of, of what it would be that you would, would want to be producing, working on, maybe acting in? Well definitely acting in. Okay. Yeah, I um I'm at a point in in my life where I, I want to actively p- pursue both both aspects of that career, and I feel like I'm being given the opportunities to do so. So I'm going to take them with both hands and see where they lead me. So I guess the perfect opportunity would be to to be creating, and I don't know whether necessarily the producing and the acting are, are the same project. Sorry, I, I think that might have been confusing in what I just said. Um, I definitely want to be producing at a high level, but I also want to be acting at a high level, and I know that they can happen in tandem. Um, The next TV show that we're developing um, is really exciting and has so much potential, not just on a local level, because at the moment it is Screen Australia funded, but um, we're also in the process of having some conversations with some American companies about potentially taking it international, um, whether that means it evolves into being transatlantic or if it's a local project that has international sa- like major international sales potential. Well, I think everything's changing in that now. Exactly. Because, because these various apps that are around, when I first moved to LA, I didn't even have a television. I just would, would uh, stick my iPad onto an HDMI mini projector and the wall of my apartment was my TV. Amazing. You know? So that was Hulu. Um, Netflix, yeah. HBO, yeah. and anything on, on YouTube if I could ever get my yoga mat out to do yoga. Because <laughs> it meant I could only watch, watch television in the dark, which meant at night. Mm. And that only happens for several hours. This is California after all, it's always sunny. But yeah, with those changes, it, the networks are still very strong. I think mm. talks who are, that are saying, you know, television's on the way out, that's not true. But the, the way that we're doing things is, is just slightly different to take into account the different audiences and different areas that they're accessing it from. It's evolving really, really quickly, and the the diversification of the projects that are being that are, are becoming international hits. They're not all originating out of out of America or even out of Hollywood. They're coming from the scan from Scandinavia. They're coming from like places that people hadn't really conceived that they would be the smash hits, mm-hmm. like Downton Abbey. 
is like it has surprised everyone with how much success it's had internationally. Really, that's because Julian Fellows can't put a foot wrong. I mean, mm. he's just extraordinary. Yeah, everything he's written. It's, yeah, it's like he and Tracy Letts are kind of my heroes. You know. I think everything that they write is is just extraordinary. But I'm sorry, go on. No, no, no. So, so absolutely, they're, they're, and, and they're the conversations that we're having at the moment that projects don't need to be in American for them to be successful in America. And um, America is obviously, well, North America is still obviously a, a major territory in terms of sales. So that needs to be kept in mind. But starting from now is is this, the, the UK is the second biggest territory for starting from now and then France and then Germany and then Australia. But you're making in Australia. Mm. But could you make, would you make overseas and, and take advantage of the tax tax situation that you can by making in other countries or you're interested in creating an Australian story in an Australian market? Well, I, th- I, I think for this story that we're working on next, um, it will start off by being an Australian story. Um, as Rosie said, we have Screen Australia funding, which is incredible. Um, so we're looking to develop this series um, as set in Australia and something that we can then... Obviously, that's universal because if you've seen Starting From Now, it does, it's not even though it's set in the inner west um, and set in Sydney and, and you can tell the environment, it's not specifically... It's not people have to live in Sydney to get the story. It's, a, it's a universal I just story. From, I'm an architecture buff, so I'm, I'm like looking at all of the houses and going, oh, <laughs> I know that feature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, we're creating universal stories with diverse characters um, and so that, I think, can travel and can appeal to anyone and there's so many more opportunities out there now mm. and so, um, so many different platforms, as Rosie yeah. said, that that it's, I think it's all changing and it's all exciting yeah. and, and we want to be at the forefront of that. Totally. Yeah. And I just wanted to clarify, um, when I was talking before about um, uh, targeting the, or speaking to the audience, the same audience, So and, and you brought up the question of, well, are we targeting the specific audience and then have we been surprised by it? Um, the audience that we're, we're focusing on right now is the audience that loves to tell stories in an inclusive world so we're not necessarily going okay this is our specific demographic because that demo that demographic has grown so far beyond what we were expecting it to be but speaking to the audience that's been built of fans who who are engaged with stories in a world where sexuality is not the the key focus of the dilemma yeah, which was that was that was a thing that, that I particularly enjoyed in seeing it and talking to other people about it. They've also said the same thing. I just had something on the on the tip of my tongue then, and it's just zipped out of my head. I'll remember it at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> does that happen to you as well? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it Do does. you have somebody who looks after your social media full time? Um, well, not full time. We have um, we do have. When we started the social media, we, we were just looking after it ourselves. Um, I still look after the Facebook and the Twitter accounts. But was it how, how long ago was it? About a year ago? Oh, I wonder if it's even more than that now. We had, because we noticed, because um, we correspond with the audience a lot and we try to respond to, to their comments and, and engage with them, um, we noticed that there are a couple of, uh, a couple of women who were responding very intelligently and were very engaged and they seemed to know each other. Um, and so then we thought... 
hey, why don't we, they're very active on social. We thought, hey, why don't we get them to do some of the social media? So we approached these two women. One lives in Sydney, one lives in Adelaide, but they're friends, um, and asked if they'd be interested in taking over the Instagram and the Tumblr accounts. And they jumped at the opportunity and they've done an amazing job. An amazing job. Katie and Linda have done such a great job. They're so onto it. Um, They're so great at the social media aspect of it that we were just like, Awesome! Yeah. Thank you so much. We've been, and they're such darlings to work with. They're so lovely. But that's the that is the problem now. The technology allows us to do things that previously we needed huge studio setups for. But with that do-it-yourself notion comes a lot of pressure to do it yourself. Yeah, and to, to keep all. that up. That's right. right. And it's exhausting. It's a lot yeah. of work. Um, and it's, yeah, the technology is there and I think that that means that there's there's been um, a great deal of content created. And so it's, yeah, there is that pressure to do it yourself and there's also um, a lot to contend with and a lot of content to contend with. So it's important, to, I mm. think, to be, to be at the forefront and, and to try and keep challenging yourselves. And that's what we did with at, at the end of season three. We really, when we sat down to talk about how many more seasons we wanted to do in order to... Because it was important to us to bring the story to a conclusion. And if anyone's seen the show, they know uh, the characters go through some tough times and, and have some trying experiences. It was important because of what we spoke about earlier about um, not having the sexuality as a source of conflict and, and having having characters who... Um, you know, who end up dead or in turmoil. It was important to be able to tell the story to service our audience, to bring it to a point where the, we knew the characters would be okay. And so when we sat down and worked out that we wanted to do two more seasons and we had this audience, we thought, well, let's challenge ourselves. Let's tell stories. Let's broach themes and topics that aren't usually dealt with on the web. Um, and then we went into seasons four and five and it's been a really a really interesting and rewarding experience making those two seasons. Mm, mm. I think you were talking earlier, Rosie, about the different, the different parts of your brain that you use for producing and acting. And, and I think one of the things we're being forced to do, forced to confront and grow with in the 21st century from a creative perspective is to fully take on board the multitasking Mm. and to get better at it because we do have to hold the camera, do the sound, then do the social media, then do all of those things. But I wonder what techniques each of you use to, and because I think this could be applied across any business, you know, but what techniques you specifically use, Rosie, mm. to switch off one side and switch on the other? Or is it just a compartmentalization thing? Do you what do you do at the end of the day, or at the if you're going to be working on one thing rather than t'other? What do you mm, do? Mm. Well, it was really um, I, I I got given a, um, a, a, an acting prep tool when I was at drama school um, about charting the emotional journey of the character, which um, really helped me when whenever we were shooting out of sequence. But I re like it really, really helped me when we st when I started stepping on board as a producer. So I would prep for for shooting for Darcy. Um, like I'd spend a couple of days charting out, like exploring the emo her emotional journey in full detail, and then charting it out and having that time, that sacred time, in this little bubble that I. Um, then had this physical map that I could use as a doorway to go back into it 
was really vital when we were on set because being on set things fall apart and things happen and you need to be there to respond to it doing that as well as having doing as much producing prep as possible and having as many things as organized as possible as a team was vital but then the third bit was having such a supportive team around me like Julie was just like infallible in in supporting me in in being able to um let go of producer responsibilities while I was needing to act mm. um having all of that structure in place was 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 necessary but what I would actually do to allow that to happen is is meditate I'm like So you one hour girl 20 minutes 5 minutes I'm a, I'm a I'm a I'm an I'm an hour in the morning and then I'm um a 5 minute solid before as the transition transition back into it throughout the day and then I'll actually just keep the track playing through one ear pod whilst it's in my whilst it's in my pocket whilst I've got the other ear on what's happening around me so I can still stay within it because I actually don't quite believe in compartmentalizing. Okay. It doesn't work for me. Um, my, yeah, I, I, I don't shut off entirely. So I would hear, I don't know, if there was a problem with catering or I'd hear if where lights were being moved. I like to know where things were at so I could feel calm enough that everything was actually okay. But I think that's that's what it's all about. Finding out the best way that we work yeah. so that we can do our best work. Totally. Is, yeah. What about you, Julie? Um, I, I completely agree with that. And I think that's that's what I tried to do. When I was when I was writing, that was easier because we were there was less producing to do during the writing process. Um, I like to write in the morning and I can only really write solidly and productively for four hours. So I would write in the morning and then do any producing stuff that needed to be done in the afternoon. Um, and the same when it came to, to prepping for the shoot in terms of directing, um, I would try and, and do as much of that in those morning hours as I can because that's when I think best um, and then move into the producing side of it. But as Rosie said, it's hard to switch off be- or hard to compartmentalise because things bleed into each other. Um, but again, just trying to be as prepared as possible. And I think no matter how many hats you're wearing, if you're going into a shoot, you need to be as prepared as possible because things never go to plan. And so if you're prepared and if you've thought through it, especially from a directing point of view, if you've thought through what you want this scene to be, what this scene's really about, um, and you know what the core of the scene is, then when something happens and that has to change, you know what's important about it and you don't have to panic and you know, okay, well, if we, even if we change this, then the scene is still the same. Mm. It still stays the same. And so, and that's really important because obviously, like, we're shooting a whole season block at one time and when we were shooting four and five, we were shooting two seasons at the same time. So that's 12 episodes. So we've got character journeys that go across 12 episodes. We're shooting out of sequence. We're shooting the equivalent amount of content as a feature film. Um, on a relatively low budget and so being prepared and knowing what each of those scenes is about is actually crucial um, and and yeah I think working knowing how you work is really important and that that takes a while and that's and working on this for the past three years has been an incredible learning curve like I've learned so much about myself and about what I'm capable of it's it's amazing how you can surprise yourself you I think um, there's a tendency to to just 
to limit what you think you can do and think, oh, well, I can only do this. But when you're pushed, and we've been pushed because everything's moved so quickly, and we've had to respond to things and we've had to just keep pushing ourselves and each other to get things done and, and to, to ride this wave, that at the end of it you go, did I really do that? And you really surprise yourself of, of the things that you can do. Well, I know that you're running short of time here, but there is something that I want to ask you about because we, we got a little bit sidetracked. I asked you before about the Screen Australia announcement last night, but there's also been more support from Screen Australia in that they have funded seasons four and five. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, so Screen Australia have been incredibly supportive. Um, after we'd made season three and it was out getting the numbers and Julie and I sat down and had that conversation about where we wanted to take the story and what we wanted to do with it, um, we realised a, a crucial factor in that is not asking people to work for free anymore. Well, it's not how we want to work and it's not sustainable for ourselves nor for the industry. So we knew we wanted to also um, take the opportunity to boost the production values as well. So we got in contact, we started building the relationships with Screen Australia through their multi-platform program with Mike Cowup in particular, but also through the heads of Screen Australia, through Sally Kaplan and Fiona Cameron, and the conversation around the show and how excited they were about the response it was getting globally was was just just so incredibly exciting. Um, so how long did it take them to come on board and say, OK? We started talking with them... Um, we like literally met Mike in August 2014 before season three went out, but then started the official conversations with them around March 2015. We put the application in um, in the middle of that year, and um, then they came. They announced funding in um, early October. Okay. And we also had funding through Screen New South Wales. They were also very supportive. So um, the combination of those two um, was great. We partnered with ACON, the AIDS Council of New South Wales, with their Women's Health Division. They came on board as a community partner. And we also had some corporate sponsorship through IVF Australia. I was going to ask you about that because somebody mentioned that to me. I, I saw it in there and I just thought that it was a great part of the storyline. No spoilers. <laughs> but, but in fact, as you say, they were a corporate sponsor, but they, were, they didn't want a lot of involvement. They just wanted to what was it, to be seen twice yeah they're, they're very good they're very smart they 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 know that audiences won't respond well to being hit over the head with a message they wanted to reach the audience that we were reaching and so they knew that that was a way by partnering with us that was something a way that they could do that um, we spoke about how it would be incorporated into storylines it's already organically incorporated anyway we made a couple of minor tweaks they were extremely happy with that and um, and they came on board as a partner and, and we're looking to partner with them into the future as well. So it's it's kind of like an in uterine product placement. <laughs> <laughs> but not. <laughs> that was great. I do know you I know that you've got to go because your minders are saying, you know, it's time for us to wrap up. Um, have a wonderful time while you're in Los Angeles. I hope they have a chance to grab you for a coffee before you go. But this has been lovely. Thanks for your time. Thank thanks, you Ella. so much. And thanks also to Australians in film for giving us this wonderful space in which to record the interview. Okay, thanks. You've been listening to Tate Fountain with Ella James. For more, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast at Audioboom, Stitcher, iTunes or your favourite podcasting app. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 
From Audioboom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top-secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify, or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.